Hey, my name is Benjamin Loeb. I'm a cinematographer on the film Pieces of a Woman, and this is The Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today's guest is Benjamin Loeb, the cinematographer for Pieces of a Woman. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And there's so much to talk about with this film and... You know, between the super long one-er scenes and the way that you block this and the way that your your cinematography choices for it. And it, I just cannot wait to dive into this because I know there's a lot to unpack. Um, but before we get there, I just want to mention our sponsor, MZ Education for Creatives, and encourage you guys to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, YouTube because we're putting a whole bunch of exclusive content on YouTube that is just for our YouTube friends. So please go there, subscribe, hit the notification bell, and of course, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Ben, uh, I just finished watching the film today. I, I really, really liked it. I thought that... I went into it with really high expectations, I have to tell you that, because I read so many great reviews and I was just so interested in the content. Um... And it met all of those expectations and really did exceed them. I think this is just a fantastic film. So first, congratulations on such a great piece of work. Thank you very much. Now, the story, for those of you guys that don't know, it's it's basically a story of a couple who, during a home birth, loses their child. And it's really an exploration and kind of like grief and tragedy. Would you agree, Ben? It seems like that really is the common theme. 100%. It, it really it really explores this idea of 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 carrying the weight of of that kind of loss um and what that does to specifically the couple in this film. Now, from a cinematography standpoint, when you're dealing with things like that, like how are there are there what kinds of techniques are you using to really give the audience that sense of grief? I mean, clearly, the performance is going to be telling a lot of that story. But a lot of it is also in cinematography. So when you get this script and you talk to the director and you're told it's about grief, it's about loss, what do you start thinking about? For 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 me, it's it's always um, it's always different. Every film and every director will have have his or hers um, sort of needs and, and desires for a film. But sort of unanimously for me and 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 across the board, I, I I like this idea of of me not being an entity that takes you away from what is in front of the camera. For sure, this is a performance based film, and without the performance, this film is nothing. Um, it 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 purely exists because of those performances. Um, uh, so for me, it was it was one of those things where I wanted to be able to sort of hold the tension and hold the the weight of that performance. Um, and I really do, you know, first and foremost, I do think, you know, editing is is the sort of first option or the first the first uh, ability for an audience to check out. It's like you you hold you hold your uh, uh, an individual's att attention for the length of or the duration of a, sp a specific shot. And as soon as you cut, for whatever reason, for me, um, you lose something. Um, so in this film, like starting to talk to Cornell about him wanting to do the birth as a oneer, um, I, I saw a lot of potential in this idea of, of of retaining and holding this tension and and really sort of locking it in sort of to you as an audience member as well. Um, but it was important to also feel like me as an entity or me as a human being wasn't the deciding force behind the camera. I didn't want it to feel like, and Cornell didn't want it to feel like I was making decisions for the audience. But we really wanted the camera to feel like it had a curiosity. Uh, we were always behind. We were always sort of learning things 
after the fact, and we were following and, and being intrigued by these these humans who are essentially unfolding in front of us. Um, and I think the the idea for us was something in the vein of uh, you know Cornell wanted this film to to feel very real and feel honest and and rooted in reality. Um, and I've said this many times, but in in the vein of Bresson or or or, uh, or Cassavetes, but. But there was something when we did our first tests and, and we we tried to go into this with the idea of let's do this handheld. It just felt too real. It felt too documentary. It felt like it was it was almost trying too hard to say something. Um, and we wanted to remove that. Um, and that's kind of where we ended up with our approach of of me me operating the gimbal, which felt like sort of a, a you know a non-human entity. Uh, it was kind of at, at at a weird height, slightly lower than their faces. It was kind of always roving around, and and I think it came from this this notion that Cornell had told me very early on was this is this is the spirit of the lost one. He would always yeah. say, so he liked this idea that that we were almost photographing the film from from the the, the eyes of this this baby or this this entity that never was was allowed to sort of enter the space. It's interesting that you say that because I think perspective is such a huge issue when I watch this movie. Like, just to bring everybody up to speed, in the first, really, the the opening of the film, pretty much, is this long 20-something minute one-er shot of the birth. It's just one long shot um, and definitely one of the high points of the film and the, the scene that everyone's talking about. So we certainly are going to talk about it. Um, but when I was watching the movie, I was like... I. I uh, it something felt off the whole time. And I was trying to put my finger on what is it that feels unique about this? Because visually, it's just people talking, dialogue. There's no wild special effects. But something feels unique and different. And I, what was what kept coming to my mind was this idea that, like, I don't know whose perspective this cinematography is from. I don't know how I'm watching it. It, it just, it was weird. I, at times, I felt like, a standard moviegoer just watching it. And at times I felt like I was almost peering through the conscience of one of the characters. It was a really strange ebb and flow constantly through the film. And I guess what I'm curious about is, was that intentional or am I just losing my mind and didn't have enough to eat in the morning? (laughs) (laughs) And and if so, why? No, it it was 100% intentional. And we wanted to to find... um, Find a, a perspective for the film that 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 rooted it in something that wasn't too human, and and for sure we didn't want it to feel mechanical, and we didn't want it to feel like like there was again an operator spoon feeding information, but we wanted it to feel like a like almost like a non-human entity, like you have something moving and it it feels organic, but it doesn't have footsteps, for example. Like mm-hmm. this was in our early conversations, um, and. And Cornell had always said he wanted and he sort of needed me to be behind the camera um, just doing our tests. He liked the curiosity and it was something he would he would always tell me was Ben, be curious, make sure that you're curious and you you want to watch these individuals and these humans. Um, and again, the the way that the birth unfolded was we wanted to have sort of a, a almost like a subjective, but yet sort of objective entity following these characters, looking at them and observing them. And every single time that Martha would have a contraction, this this entity would be interested in her and really focus on her. So every single time she had a contraction, I, I was allowed essentially to move into her face and be with her and, and really only focus on that and then let go again. So specifically during the birth, the, the sort of spiritual 
being of whatever I was trying to do was kind of linked to our contractions in some way. Um, and we had originally talked about trying to do some trying to do something visual that that manifested that as well, um, which we tried during the first take, and it just felt like again, it felt like we were trying to do too much. What was it um, that you tried? Um, we tried this thing where we wanted the the lights to sort of dim and contract a little bit in in the same way that her contractions would. But again, this was again in 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 mine and Cornell's uh, preliminary conversations. This film was never intended intending to force a visual perspective or, or, or be visual in that sense. It, it needed to feel raw and honest and rooted in reality for this to really work and for that emotional sort of power of their performances to really hold what they did. Um, so as soon as we saw that, we were like, abort, abort mission. Let's, yeah. let's stick, let's stick to, let's stick to reality and let's stick to, let's stick to the language of, of what this camera and these performances bring us. The decision, I, I want to talk about the decision to, not be handheld, but to put this on, did you put it on a Ronin? I know you had it on a gimbal, right? The yeah, camera? it was a Ronin, a Ronin too. What, how did that decision come to be? Because I think when people think cinema verite, when they think conceptually, as I'm hearing you talk, it feels like, well, yeah, a handheld feel is what we're talking about, but you didn't do that. And I would love to know why. I, I went into the 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 main location, this apartment um, with Cornell and, and, and Kata, the writer, um, and we did some preliminary tests on 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 the mini with anamorphic sphericals, handheld, and it just felt like it felt like something we'd seen too many times before. Um, and it's something that I really love about Cornell is is he he's he's done he's done his fair share of sort of auteur indie, specifically European, um, and he wanted this he always wanted this to feel different. Yeah, he he'd always talked about this as being like a like a Bersonian type film, but rooted in, in, in melodrama. It needed language. It needed something really specific. Um, so from the beginning, Cornell and I had talked about what's the one tool, the one thing that we can really root this film in that makes sense for the for the story, for the characters, for the movement. We talked about Steadicam, but that eliminated me from operating, and that was sort of out of the question. And we needed this to be, and, and it, it was so intimate that it, there needed to be trust between the operator and, and the actors in a different way. Um, and I, I I hired a gimbal operator or a gimbal technician and, and asked him to hey put it on let's let's have a look at it at the camera at the camera house, um, and he kind of just told me Ben I'm not comfortable doing this scene um, you should just put it on and I I just essentially said no I have never done this I can't do this um, you had never I, done it before no <laughs> wait a minute you you hadn't used the gimbal at all or you just haven't used it in kind of a professional setting no I've I've never used a gimbal on my on my body. I've used a gimbal wow. and had and had other operators do it, um, and I, I and I've I've obviously seen movies that have used gimbals in in ways that have intrigued my my curiosity, but I'd never put it on and sort of done the movements. Um, but I put it on and we found a setting that you know felt weirdly organic. Um, and after that test, I showed it to Cornell, and Cornell was like, "This is it, Ben," and I was like. Are you sure this is it? Because in my head, I was like, this is it too. But I didn't want to say it because I knew if I started day one with a gimbal, I would end day 29 with a gimbal and it would be on my back. Um, so there was a level of hesitation knowing that uh, I, I hadn't prepared for this film that way. That's a different That's a different mentality and a different, you know, a whole different strain on your body. Um but it felt it felt right, and we both agreed. And, and essentially, I I just ended up going into the camera house with my with my team, and 
I put it on for two minutes, took it off, put it on for two minutes, took it off, got to four minutes, took it off, repeated, 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 got to six, eight, 10, 12 minutes. And when we got to 12 minutes, I, I essentially just said, I feel comfortable doing double. So if I can do 12, I can do double. So we just put it down and didn't, we, we honestly didn't touch it again until birth day one. Um, and in between those two, we'd we'd finally had an opportunity to do an actual blocking of of the scene um, with Vanessa and Shia and and, and Molly, um, and I recorded this on my iPhone, walking through the space with them, sort of you know figuring out what what movements made sense, how can you get into this space and that space, and that one take was thirty eight minutes. Wow. Um, and this was, I think, two days before the main the the shoot. Um, and I think after that thirty eight minute take, we were all like. We got this down. This is now in our brain. We know how this is going to work. We just got to shave 10 minutes off. We're going to be good. So we put it aside, and then day one, we I think we shaved 10 minutes off, but it was still a couple of minutes too long. How many takes did you end up filming? Um, of the birth, we did six takes. We did four takes on day one and two takes on day two. Um, and I think we realized uh, as much as the takes themselves were getting technically better and cleaner um, throughout day two, the final take on day one, the fourth take, was by far the best performance-wise. Um, now, you know, it's just us creative filmmaker types here. We'll keep it secret. <laughs> Is there an edit in that scene? No. It's purely just straight up 22 minutes or whatever it is. Yep. That's amazing. And, it, and what, what, I guess, what restraint for a director to not it, almost insist, like, well, I like the first part of take three and I like the last part of take four. I mean, we've seen these types of shots before, cleverly edited with door frames and things like that. Uh, that's a bold choice. And it was, it, 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 I, will, I will preface this by saying there's another five minute chunk of the scene that also is a part of the oneer up until pre, pre-water breaking and water breaking. There are now edits in that part, but that was a part of the oneer that we chopped down to essentially make sure that the, the water started as the water broke instead of pre. Yep. You mentioned this idea of wanting the camera movement in the scene to not feel mechanical. Um, I want you to dive a little bit more into that because I'm thinking to myself, in order to execute it, the blocking has to be extremely precise. It, was that true? Or did you truly just let it be free and open? The the blocking was precise in the way that all the the you know Vanessa and Shia were always ahead of me. They I would never lead them into any space. It would always be them taking me into something. So that was my sort of backup of like, hey, if I forget my move, I have them leading me. But it became muscle memory because we you know during that first walkthrough, it was essentially you know kitchen, dining room, couch or pre couch, couch off the couch into the hallway, bathtub. It, it was all pretty specific. But within each of those sort of pit stops, you know, the action would unfold for, you know, one minute, three minutes, five minutes. Um, and those moments weren't necessarily pre-planned and, and they happen differently every single time. Like, the, you know, they, they end up in front of the couch and all of a sudden Vanessa's on the, on the ground with Shia's foot around her neck. And it's like she he's trying like that. That all just happened. Um, so within the blocking, there were always moments where you had to intuitively sort of figure out what, what is the right thing to be on and, and what does the camera want to show? Um, and I also did have, um, I had, um, a headset on so I could talk to my, uh, my director Cornell. Um, and, and the one thing he'd always told me was, 
then if you're if you're if you're ever lacking an intention of where to go, just land on Shia's face mm-hmm. because the the face of this anticip you know the the the, the anticipation of this father to be the 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 excitement that I have no idea where I should be, what I should do. This it, it resembles what I felt. It resembles what Cornell felt, and he would always tell me, "If you're ever in doubt, land on Shia's face." Vanessa was always phenomenal, but if you ever was in in between Molly, her, you needed something. He was the he was the middleman, and it was it was true. Every single time you needed something, he was there. Wow. So did you feel like there were a ton? There were a lot of moments where you adapted that role or adopted that role rather? One, 100%. And it was always something where, you know, Martha's character would be twisting and turning and her face would be dug into the ground and away from me. And it was at certain moments, you're like, I need, I need, I need a face. Yeah. I yeah. can, I can hold on this for this, for this long, but I need something to show something. Um, and that would be, again, Molly was phenomenal. She came, she came in and really, Killed, killed that whole role. It was, it was absolutely nuts for her to be thrown into this dynamic that that had unfolded, uh, which was in, intense. Like both, both Vanessa and and Shia really took on these parts, and 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 it was something that excited me was knowing that we had two two characters who were allowed to perform without restrictions, without boundaries. Like there was nothing we told them you cannot do, or you cannot go here. You cannot do this. Obviously they had the blocking and they had, you know, the script in some ways. Um, but in the end it was, they can really become these characters. And and that for me also, honestly, I didn't think about the gimbal. It became, I, I became weightless in some way because of the adrenaline of that scene and, and seeing these people perform in front of me, and and having the ability to do the same myself, I knew that if I if if I fucked up, I ruined everything. So it was kind of one of those things where I knew that I couldn't I couldn't bail. So I had to step up to meet them in some way. Um, and I think honestly that came from 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 trust because um, we never talked about I I know my position as the person behind the camera, and I know especially in a film like this, the performance is king. Like I I have. I really have nothing to say other than trying to retain language and try to to really keep it cohesive. But in essence, for me, it was make sure that I feel like I'm doing them a favor and and, and not taking away from their performance. Um, and it was something that was never talked about, but I think just based on based on us as human beings and the way that we interacted, we just knew that. And I think they just trusted me. Like Ben is going to be there, and he's going to be there for a reason. And if he's there, it it means something. So. They gave me that space, um, and and I remember after the first couple of takes, they would always come up and be like, "Ben, you're a ninja," and I feel like it kind of represents it in some ways because I was there, but I wasn't there. I was kind of an, an invisible entity. It's also such a tight space and a practical space. You didn't build this studio, and there's three other people in the scene. Tight corridors. When I was watching the scene and looking at the bathroom, I'm like, "Oh my god, what a nightmare to shoot in this bathroom." Um, talk to me about the challenges of just space. I mean, did you bang into walls? Did you trip over things like that? That must have happened. (laughs) Yeah, that that doorway into the bathroom is 21 inches wide, um, which is, you know, barely enough to fit your shoulders through. So it's it was one of those things where, you know, the original blocking in Cornell's mind had them going in and out of the washroom, I think, twice or three times. Um, and immediately we were like, let's do this once because that is where we will fail. 
if we if we fail any place in this scene, it's going to be going in and out of that door. Um, so I taped up I taped up the doorways at the at the rental house, and I would put on the gimbal and I would just walk around and I would walk through these doors. I would try to make do do my moves and then essentially glide through the door and make sure I didn't you know hit the tape. Um, and for the most part, it felt pretty comfortable, but. One hundred percent. I don't think I ever hit the bathroom door, the, the, which is the, obviously the, the narrowest corner. But the, the, the reason for that was, you know, in that moment, I'm outside of the bathroom door. I see Shia holding her hand and I pan over to uh, to uh, Ava's character, played by Molly, who's getting the bed ready for, for the birth. And then Shia leaves and I pan back and essentially Vanessa's hand is hanging over the bathtub. Yeah. Um, and I remember each time the intention was let's make this a slow a slow and calm creep that 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 doesn't really try to do anything um and i'd remember that the first couple of times her hand was kind of just there and i was i was looking for something to motivate me to do this move because it just felt like i was creeping in and it, it felt a little awkward um so i just asked vanessa to just as she could feel the camera enter the bathroom to just move her hand slowly towards like have some kind of movement with her hand and, and move it towards the belly because there was no way for me to go into the bathroom and turn without it being this incredibly awkward move. Mm. Um, and and that completely saved me from from all of it. I, I could literally turn around my own axis, focus on the belly, and then I was tucked up literally against the sink and a, and a side wall. So when Shia came back in again, I was I was pretty trapped. Um, but I remember there there are two there are two there are two spots in that take. Where I bump into Shia, I think, and one is when when Molly first comes into the the scene, where we whip around and, and open the door for her. I bump into Shia once, um, and then there's essentially when he helps when he helps Martha get out of the bathtub, his his elbow sort of knocks me from below. But again, it just felt. I, I remember talking about Cornell or talking to Cornell about this, and it it just felt like these are just imperfections of the scene, and it just makes it feel all the more real. It 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 definitely breaks the fourth wall a little bit at certain points if you notice it. Um, I don't know if people do, but for me, I'm like this is it. It, it brings me back to that moment. So for me, for me, it still works. <laughs> Talk to me about the makeup of your crew. Um, did you have somebody kind of like behind you guiding you? Did you have somebody pulling focus? Like what was the camera crew during this scene? So I had uh, first and foremost, my, my, my first AC, Maxime uh, Boutin, who's a, a phenomenal young focus puller from Montreal. Um, he was on a monitor stuck in the same room as Cornell and my gaffer on a dimmer board, um, which was the only room we never saw in the scene. And he was on a monitor pulling his hair, hair out, sort of trying to figure out, am I walking forwards? Am I going backwards? Am I zooming? Am I like, what am I doing with this thing? Because I had essentially an Alexa mini on a Ronin two um, with a zoom control on, on my thumb. So I essentially had full control over this lens. Like, and we predominantly used this, the zoom to sort of make more intentional moves towards one character. If we wanted something to feel like now we're focusing on this person, but for, for Maxime, he would never know if I was, if I was moving forwards while zooming or if I was just walking or just zooming. So for him, it was a nightmare. Wow. But he was, he was phenomenal. What was the um, lens that you used? Do you remember? I think it was a PZM. Uh, so a, Pan, a Panavision, um, it was, it was the 27 to 75, uh, Primo, Primo zoom. I think it's the PC, 
Primo Compact, Primo Compact, Compact Zoom. Okay. Okay. So did you ever go all the way into that 75? I mean, that's not a huge range, but it's enough to do damage, especially when there's a yeah. focus puller in your handheld. I I think what we did was uh, we blocked off the lens past 45. So we were in the 27 to 7, 27 to 45 range. Sure. I, I don't think I ever really went further. And especially in that scene, I, I know I locked it off. Um. But yeah, for him, for him, it was it was a nightmare. But he, but he, he was a champ. Um, I had a, I had a grip with me. Uh, but again, there was there was no space in this room, and we turned everywhere. So there were some moments where I had preemptively told my grip that I need help in this moment. Um, and some of those were again when 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 Martha's character ends up on the ground in front of the fireplace by the couch. I am down on my knees on these knee pads with the whole rig like almost scraping the floor, and. As soon as they pick, as soon as they pick Martha up from the ground, I'm like, I can't do the same thing. I need to be picked up too. So he would come up and and actually give me a lift to to get back up on my feet at that moment. Um, but for the most part, it was just me trying to get through all these corners because it was it was the three actors, it was myself and two boom operators, and and that alone was quite a bit. Wow. So you two boom operators. And the three actors all floating around in that space. That is an achievement in and of itself. Do you do you have any footage of the of making of of that scene? That would be so interesting to see. You should have <laughs> you should have mounted I, like I, little I, GoPros I, in the ceiling or something so we can I, see I, how you float through the space. I should have I should have hidden the GoPro on the on my arm. That would have been amazing. <laughs> that actually would have been really cool. To all right, you guys listening. The next time any of you are doing these big one-er shots, throw a GoPro on your camera. Let us see kind of what the environment is looking like. I think that would be so cool to see that. Ah, next time. Next time next, you're next, next time, time you're doing a 30-minute <laughs> Exactly. I want to talk about your approach to lighting because you're in a 360 space and, of course, other scenes in the film. Um, but before we do that, I just want to quickly mention our sponsor, MZ, Education for Creatives. So it's perfect for us here at Go Creative Show. And the reason that I love MZ is it's hundreds of hours of high-quality video-based filmmaking education. Really good quality stuff. And the education's great, but it's the teachers themselves that are really the most impressive. I mean, you're learning from people that you know and love already. Um, Vincent Laferre, Shane Hurlbert, Philip Bloom is an educator on MZ. Um, Tom Cross, he's the editor for La La Land and Whiplash, and he does a whole course on the art and technique of filmmaking. Uh, they've got courses on DaVinci Resolve, directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, like everything that we need to know is there on MZ. Um, and yes, you can buy individual courses, and that's a great way to experience MZ. But the best way to experience MZ is by becoming an MZ Pro member. Now, it's a subscription membership, so you have access to everything on their library, or in their library, rather, Everything is at your fingertips all the time. And it's such a great way to learn and hone your craft. And I just absolutely love the guys at MZ. The course is just, just so well-crafted and so well-made. And it's just a great opportunity to learn. Now, here's the best thing. You go to mz.com. Actually, no, wait, hold on. You go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. And the reason you do it that way is because when you get to the checkout, Put in GCS20 and you get 20% off your purchase. So that is a really great way to just support our show, you know, save yourself some extra dollars and give yourself education, right? It's a win, win, win. GoCreativeShow.com forward slash 
MZ. So Ben, let's get back into it. I want to talk about your approach to lighting um, for the whole film, but particularly in this birth scene that we've been talking about. Um, you're in a real apartment. You've got a million people running around. Um, and you're filming basically 360. You're filming everything. So how do you light this space? Um, that was also a request from Cornell um, in, in early prep was, Ben, all of the locations need to be ready for 360. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no there was no scene that we went in with, hey, we're going to the side this way. He really wanted the he he really wanted this to be um, the actor space, and he wanted the blocking and and the actors' in, in, intentions and instincts to really help inform the way that those scenes unfolded. Um, so specifically for the birth, it was you know it was day one production didn't want to shoot it at nighttime, um, so we had to tent we had to first tent the whole apartment, um, uh, and obviously we had some units outside. We I'm not a huge fan of this idea of moonlight and and. I, I'm. I will, and I will preface this by saying I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico, right now, now, and I've never seen a moon so bright. Like it feels like there's a, a massive moon box outside every night, but I just don't like that feeling. So we 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 agreed that nighttime is dark, um, and that's how we that's how we perceive the outside. So we would we would sort of put some units outside just to give shape and and the the feeling of of practicals or or, or street lamps, um, and the inside was honestly we spent so much time fixing practicals and making sure that we had them in the right in the right spots and the right places with the right intensity um, knowing the positions of each thing so that my gaffer could essentially ride the dimmer board as we as we moved through to to make sure that things you know the, the our neg side was was prop like to our liking at that point um and and essentially because we saw almost all of this apartment I had no I had no spots to hide things but um, I found, I think, four different areas in the hallway. I could hide a couple of light mats in the ceiling above the practicals just to give a little bit more, you know, definition to that, to those areas. Um, I'd hid something in the bathroom because we didn't see it. And I, I hid something in the in the, in the the bedroom, which we ended up seeing and had to get painted out. So, again, 90% of what is in my lighting inside is, is was practicals. And it was my gaffer on the dimmer board writing those, writing those levels as we move through. Did you struggle with um, reflections of yourself, shadows of yourself that shouldn't be in there? What were some of the struggles you faced? Well, I, I remember um, after we did the first iPhone sort of walkthrough, um, my, my my sound mixer and my, my boom operators weren't there. So I, I immediately called Simon, who was the, the sound mixer, and, and asked him if he could come down to the apartment. And I, I showed him this take. And I just walked him through the blocking, and there's so many little pot lights in the ceiling and that that create shadows. So we would just walk through section by section and literally tape off little things like this one we don't need, this one we can turn off, this one we you know. Um, and still, I think we ended up having, I think one one boom shadow that I know for sure is in there. But other than that, nothing. That's, that's not so bad. Maybe because everything's practical and kind of up against corners for the most part. You just yeah. didn't, you didn't have that, but that, you know, now having gone through this, your first time using a gimbal yourself, um, you know, what, anything you would change, any lessons that you learned that you're taking to your next projects? Like what, what came out of that professionally for you just as a, you know, a lesson? I think as a lesson, just I'm, I'm less skeptical of gimbal. Hmm. I really do, really do see a use for them um, that I didn't see before. I was, I was always pretty, you know, cams are the way to go. 
they feel right. Uh, gimbals are mechanical tools that don't specific way that makes me feel weird, but I, I, I don't feel that way anymore. Um, other than that, I re- I, w- I wouldn't change anything. I really go into each project. They they kind of become um, a reflection on the, on, on the process. Um, and, and whatever the process for this film, this is what it is. And and it's not my place to change anything. I'm, I'm not a big person about, you know, for, for regrets in life. It is what it is. <laughs> I want to talk about the way that you visually represented Boston. Because that's where mm-hmm. I'm from. So I'm sensitive to it, obviously. And also, there's so many films shot in Boston. And there's kind of that Boston look. I think you guys kind of avoided that. I think you brought a really fresh and unique look uh, or, or view of Boston. Um, uh, was that something you considered when you're filming such an iconic place that has such a... Like, there's an idea of what Boston looks like in cinema. How did you approach the look of Boston? Well, a lot of it was based on uh, on Cornell's Cornell's initial ideas because he 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 did you know early on Scout he he wanted us to all go down to Boston to make sure that we knew what Boston felt like and looked like so we we had an idea of what we needed to mimic. Uh, we never did that, <laughs> which I which I'm really happy about because again, like when you're not shooting, it's like you're not shooting in Boston, so you've got to embrace what you have. Uh, and sure, like I, I, I'm not an American citizen. I've never been to Boston. So I, I can say truthfully, I have no I have no proper idea of what Boston represents other than what what movies have told me yeah. or what I know from photos of Boston. Well, even so more I, so then. So, I mean, you don't have like firsthand experience. You only have what you've seen in film. So yeah. like when you know you're you're lighting a location for Boston, having only been informed by what you've seen in pictures and film, how do you approach that? I will say for 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 me at a certain point you 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 know the sort of geog- geographical layout and what is more prominent and, and less prominent and you you decide hey let's let's pick locations that cater more towards this idea of what this might be uh, but for me I I didn't go in thinking hey I need to make this look like Boston I just knew that we were in such a we were shooting uh, we were shooting four seasons in Boston in Montreal during winter which is the the worst possible thing you can think of like we had some we had scenes that were cut from the film where where we have massive massive exterior sets in shooting in January for summer and we it was oh like god it, it 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 was hard um but again like we would go through and and especially this would be on our production designer and location manager's mind more than ours but really making sure that our spaces kind of didn't have things that absolutely weren't Boston. And I'm sure there are still elements like that um, in the film. But but for us, it was just trying to really make sure that we found we found locations that that worked for us. Because my, my least favorite thing is going into a movie shooting in a city that isn't the city it's set in, and then not being able to pick the locations that feel right in in, in terms of what's available. Um, it's it's always a, a kind of a catch twenty two because you're looking for something that doesn't really exist, and you need to find something that works. Um, but I, I felt like what we found in pieces of woman was a was a fine middle ground. I don't know if you agree. I do agree. I think, like I said, I mean, I, I feel like you guys didn't. Oftentimes, I feel like people try to make, they'll try to use all the Bostony things to like make it really feel like. Boston. And I'm sure L.A. residents feel the same way when people try to make a movie look like like, hey, we're in L.A. and you really want everybody to know it. I think any place that is 
you know, a destination that people have experience with on vacations and in cinema, you know, I, I, I feel like you guys avoided, you almost don't even know where you are. Like you just, it's just a place and yeah. it goes away. It isn't a character in the film, which happens so often when you do films in Boston and it's just New York as well. 100%. And, and I will say, like, I do think it was I do think it was important for Cornell to set this in Boston. But I I, I will say, and, and we did talk about this, the location doesn't matter. Mm. This is about two human beings who lost a child and are dealing with the trauma and the aftermath of this and what that is doing to their family. Where this is set does not matter. Really, it's yeah. it's about it's about placing them in a believable environment that makes you feel like this is their home. This is where they exist. And, and and letting that exist. Um, and, and I felt like that that was what it became in the end. Um, of course, it's set in Boston and we have the Boston Ambulance. Um, we had the Boston Globe as a location in the script, which didn't end up in, in it. Um, so 100 percent, there was obviously an, an, an a push to make this this Boston. But in the end, it doesn't matter, I think. Yeah, I want to talk about coverage or lack thereof. And I'm very curious about how you approached it. In Pieces of a Woman, the, we talked a lot about your shooting style and how there was some quite long runners and uh, you're following characters through space. So what was your approach to coverage? You know, as a viewer, I'm noticing that there are scenes where there's multiple characters, but you kind of only focus on the main character. You don't even get the over the shoulders and the cross shots and the close ups. Like it seemed like a, a, um, a very um, purposeful lack of coverage. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, like I, I think the idea of coverage again sort of stems from from this idea we have about film that comes from recipe um, and predominantly TV. I think, um, and obviously there there are classic films that use coverage in a beautiful way. Um, but I find uh, I find coverage for me becomes this idea of, of of a scene becoming stagnant and you're repeating shots. Um, like I remember seeing Call Me By Your Name for the first time and realizing that every single shot was moving you forwards in the story always. Like mm. you, you'd never go back to the same shot and it was always kind of pushing the, the story. Um, and for this film, it was it, it's it's such a mix of a, a melodrama cinema verite. Like there's even like mumblecore elements to it where, you know, in the, in the pre-dinner scene where, where they're talking about the white stripes and you're like, what the hell are they talking about? But it was kind of this idea that we wanted, we really wanted to base our experience in Martha and all these characters, all these characters and these family members exist, um, but they exist in and around her and her energy. And that's kind of what is the trigger for all of it in some ways. Um, so I, I think the, the best example is that dinner scene where there, there is a ton of coverage and you could have shot that in, you know, 92 different shots and angles. And, and it just felt, it felt like we wanted to experience this again in a similar way to the birth. And this was again, the part of the conversation where these two scenes wanted to sort of be on the same pillar and kind of represent one another in some ways. And one was pre one was post. Um, and obviously this, this pre dinner scene leads to the sort of breakdown of, 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 of the two main characters, the mother and, 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 um, and, and the daughter who loses her, 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 her child. Um, and we wanted that tension again, like this idea of this sort of non nonsensical dialogue about the white stripes and all the stuff that's going on in the background to to be a part of this kind of like weird building element in the background when you know that she is her mind is somewhere completely different. She's still she's still thinking about what you know she's thinking about. The mother's thinking about what you know she's thinking about. And those two things essentially collide in the middle of this kind of family get together 
where where everybody's mind is on different things. Who made the decision to approach it that way with not having traditional coverage? Was that yours, the director? I think this comes from Cornell. Um, I, I'm, I'm a massive fan of it. Um, but but again, like Cornell comes from theater, um, theater and opera, and of course his films, but um, he has a different idea. Like he, I really find him, um, he's bold. Like he's not, he's not, he doesn't feel like he needs to do anything specifically right. Like he just wanted to push the boundaries of this, this, the, 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 specifically the, these two scenes. Um, and, and we both agreed that the notion of being with Martha for the entirety of it or floating in and around her, her presence felt like the right thing. Yeah, I, I loved the choice personally. I thought it was really great and reflective of that birth scene and kind of having that pre-birth and then this this dinner scene post-birth um, was, was to me, I mean, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole for a second. I did not see the White Stripes conversation as being unnecessary. It felt very necessary to me in a way. Um, <clears throat> maybe I'm looking too deep into it, but I felt like the whole story was on this idea of bridge building. And that's what the main character, well, one of the main characters, that Sean, Sean's character is a bridge builder. Um, and this idea of resonance, when he has his, his monologue about, you know, the vibrations of different entities working together, but if they're too strong, they can break apart. And for those of you that saw the film, you know this moment. Um, there are many references to the idea of two things holding something up and then breaking apart. And I saw it all throughout the film in the White Stripes conversation. The very first thing I thought is, why are they talking about this? But then immediately I'm like, that is a relationship story. It, like, every time there was dialogue that felt mundane and unnecessary, it there really was some meaning in there. And I just love that. And I thought that's a testament yeah. to the writing for sure. Um, no, seeing you're nodding, I'm thinking maybe this isn't a rabbit hole. Maybe it is real and something's going on there, no, but, no, it, but it's, it, it's, it just it's, felt right to me. Yeah. And I remember there's a moment where, where, where Sean's character is talking about them pretending to be brother and sister and then, and, and how their relationship is falling apart. And then Vanessa or Martha, Martha walks out past him. And I, I don't think this take was used, but there was a take pre the, pre that one where, they shared a look in that moment, which was so uncomfortable because you could tell that what was happening in his story was also happening to them, which was beautiful. Yeah. And again, and again, it, it is. It, I think for many, it is a nonsensical story and a nonsensical part until you realize what it actually means. But yeah, you're right. Let's talk about the lighting in this pre-dinner scene. Um, again, another situation where you need to be 360. Although this time it's daytime, um, so you have a totally different you know, look within the space and a much larger space as well and a lot more characters. Um, so what was your approach to that? Well, I knew that this this house was much bigger um, and had had a lot more room um, for us to actually hide units in. Um, so I'd, I'd, I'd rigged up um, LEDs in, in most of the ceilings um, to sort of help the ambience. And then I had uh, a numerous HMIs kind of st st stacked around the house based on the sun path. Um, Kind of giving us a, a key for each each and every single moment. Um, so for 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 this one, it was it was a, a it was more of an ordeal to put together. But it, in some ways, it felt easier than easier than the birth. Yeah, and at the end of this scene is the first time we see 
another character that isn't, you know, Sean and, um, oh, I'm so bad with names, Martha. It's the first time we land on a character's face for a long period of time that isn't that couple. And it's Elizabeth, Ellen Bernstein's character. Um, Tell me about your approach to that scene. It's a really powerful scene. It's a deviation from the way you've been filming the rest of it. How did you make those decisions? We we knew that the the the, the pre dinner scene would kind of be be broken up into a few elements. We knew that it would be the the majority of this chunk up until the monologue. We knew that post the monologue, you'd have this interaction with Sean's character. Um, so we we sort of knew it needed a few different elements, and we couldn't do this one or all the way through again. Um, and it felt like as these two characters, these two sort of giants in this film, um, you know, Ellen and Vanessa sort of meet and and really stop and 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 sort of hold each other accountable to something. Um, it needed to go back into coverage, and it and it needed to be something where it 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 wasn't about anything but one face and another face. We wanted it to be these two faces just talking to each other. Um, and I felt like, again, seeing seeing Ellen's performance that first time on, on her close-up, it was like, you, you have shivers. Like, there's nothing else. Like, what else will, What else do you need? Like, you, you, for sure you could cover it in multiple ways, but what, what else do you want? Yeah. Like, there's, it doesn't need anything. And it reflects the visual language of the film to just let something linger. It's just a unique choice to have it be on her for the first time, on someone else for such a long time. I thought it was great. Yeah. Uh, in our last few minutes, I want to talk about the color of this film. It's got a really strong color tone all throughout, very consistent. Um, talk to me about sort of how you landed on that palette and what you did to stay within it. So for for the most part, you know, Cornell and I had never worked together before, before this film, um, and and I usually find that directors want you know their DPs to watch all these movies and make sure that their taste is aligned with with their directors. Um, Cornell didn't do any of that, and um, it, it really surprised me and caught me off guard. He he sent me two painters. He sent me Lucian Freud and Baltus, mm. um, and he said, "Look at these paintings. This is wow. this is what I want you to see." Um, and and those two painters and 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 the way that they. They rendered their subjects, the colors, the the way that they look at subjects um, became the main reference for how to photograph this film. Um, Color-wise, uh, palette-wise, almost like just the feeling of of how how to wash a subject kind of came from there. So that's that's kind of where we built our palette from. Obviously, I'd I'd created a uh, created a, a LUT for my camera with with my colorist um, pre-shoot. Um, and we really tried to stay within that realm um, and and keep this keep this a warm a warm film like in the pastelli tone um, and and hold that through through the di. Um, but it was it was from those two painters. Hmm. So when you get that when you're not using film as reference, it, it, is this something that excited you? Like did it did it feel like you had more room to interpret yourself? Or was it kind of scary in a way? Because now you now you're trying to figure out what exactly does this director want? Is he is he messing with me? What's happening here? It, it definitely takes a while to figure out if you're on the same page when you start working. Um, and it did it did take a couple of weeks to really realize like okay we we are talking the same language. Um, what I what I found find helpful though is you're not looking at scenes and being like hey this scene is what we want to do like we want something like this. You're instead you're looking at a, an abstract representation of something being like what what in this 
picture represents our film, which is moving. Like how, how do you translate this still into something that does something for you? Um, so for me, it's nice just based on the fact that you can have an open conversation with a, with another human about something that's so abstract and make it tangible for your project and, and try to conceptualize it in your own brain more so than based on another production in some way. Um, so it, it was liberating to know that he was that open, but um, we did have one reference and it was, it was uh, uh, Jean d'Arc, um, the, the trial of Jean d'Arc, hmm. um, which became the, the main reference and the only actual movie reference in, within the film, uh, which was used for the birth, um, uh, for the for the court, which we wanted to have uh, every single person photographed, sort of medium shot, head like head head and face in the center, and just cut between every single person, uh, sort of unifying everybody a little bit towards the end. Yeah, I think that courtroom scene was the most. Uh, this really, just for lack of a better word, but it was the most like traditionally shot. Um, and maybe that just is a testament to the space that they're in. It's more formal. It's It has, you know, an expectation to it about the way people move in the space and the way they react in the space. Um, that's how I felt watching it. Yeah, and, and we talked about that many times. We, we, we even debated, should we do this in a one or as well? Um, does that make sense? And it just felt like it was the wrong space to do that. Like it felt like this was a different a different entity as a whole and it needed something different. Um, and we'd watch that movie as a reference and it was just so beautiful. To just, it was again, just this idea of here's a person and the person is talking, here's another person and it's the same type of person, but different. And now he's talking or she's talking and it, it, it felt like the right move. Um, definitely a staggering difference between the, you know, the rest of the film and that, but I feel like for that specific purpose, it worked. Mm. And the last thing I want to talk to you about is the final shot of the film in the apple tree. Now, apples are one of the themes of the film. For anybody that watched it, you know why. Um, there was a decision there to not clearly see or understand exactly what's going on. You have an assumption of what's going on, but you film the whole thing through the branches of a tree, so your view is kind of obstructed. Um, talk to me about that decision, and I think, and, and to me, it's another one of those uh, moments where you're 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 really um, refraining from traditional coverage. You're just shooting it in a really unique way. I loved it. Um, tell me about that decision. Um, I think, again, talking about the ending, it, it was a big conversation um, for, for Cornell and I um, because it feels like the film kind of ends on the bridge. She pours the ashes out and and you could have followed those ashes for minutes and minutes and and, and, and that would have been a fine ending. But it was always incredibly important for Cornell to, to leave this film on, on like this idea of, of proper hope. And, and some might take the scene as a literal uh, representation of this is what happened. Um, I've had multiple people ask me like, what does this mean? And I'll say, it means whatever it means to you. Mm -hmm. Is it, a, it could be a dream. It could be an idea, a concept. It could be the future. Um, but again, like we wanted to shoot something that, that could be something that made you think a little bit, um, and it, not not so much as a uh, as a proper statement of you know this is this is it, um, and it's one of the reasons we wanted it to be a, a longer sequence that also could hold the 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 credits, but something where you didn't really see Martha properly. It wasn't something that that overly showed something specific, but was more a feeling of something. 
Yeah, it's it, it feels dreamlike to me because you almost think like, was this her childhood? Like, is that is that her as a little girl? Then, of course, the apple tree, you're thinking, it, did this did the seedlings grow up? But how is that possible? It would have taken forever. So there's there's a lot to interpret there. And I think obviously intentional, but a great way to end that film. I, I loved it. I'm glad that that scene was in there because you're right. It could have ended at the bridge. Um, but I, I like that little extra piece at the end. It, it gives it something. And as a and as a as, as a fun fact, that that one shot was shot in Norway. Oh, really? Yeah. Why Why did you move production all the way to Norway? There are apple trees all over the place. You know that, right? <laughs> exactly. No, well, Cornell Cornell is based in Hungary uh, and Berlin, and I live in Oslo. Um, and we we wrapped this film, uh, principal photography. We wrapped in um, January twenty eighth, twenty twenty. So as we were going into the edit, the pandemic hit um, and, and we hadn't shot this one scene and we knew that we needed it. Um, and there were a couple of other pickups that we needed to. Um, so we, we had planned to schedule a pickup shoot for April, May. And the only country that would let us in was Norway. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So there you go. There's one way that COVID impacted your production, but ended up working out nice because that's where you are anyway. Exactly. I was happy. <laughs> exactly. I love it. So what's next for you, Benjamin? Um, I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico, prepping Jesse Eisenberg's directorial debut. Oh, wow. Is there a title? There, is he what? Is there a title? Yeah. When you, when you finish saving the world. Nice. That's great. Can you tell us anything about it? A premise, a synopsis, a style? Um... I would say uh, th there is there is an audiobook that that Jesse wrote during I think during the pandemic um, that he released, which is loosely uh, loosely the same. It, it, it's the film is based off of that, but it's different. Nice. Um, but it's very much you know Jesse Jesse wrote it and he's directing it, um, so it is very much in the vein of his personality, which I really like. Oh, how exciting. That's great. Good for you. Well, good luck to you on this film. Uh, Pieces of a Woman is available now on Netflix. It is awesome. And you guys should definitely, definitely check it out if you haven't already. And if you have, watch it again. Now that you've heard about how this thing was made, it makes it even better. Um, I want to plug your website, lobeben.com, L-O-E-B-B-E-N.com. Um, anything else you want to plug? Instagram, Twitter? I don't have any. Look at you. You're better off for it. Believe me, you are better off for it. <laughs> Benjamin Loeb, cinematographer of Pieces of a Woman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right. I want to thank Benjamin Loeb for coming on the Go Creative Show. Talk to us all about his film, Pieces of a Woman. You guys definitely need to check this film out. It's on Netflix. It's available now. I want to thank... Our sponsor, MZ Education for Creatives. And don't forget, you get 20% off your MZ purchase by typing in GCS20 at checkout. So definitely do that. You support us and you save a few, doc, uh, save a few bucks, right? Who doesn't want that? Um, also, I want to encourage you to follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And for those of you guys already watching us on YouTube, subscribe to us and hit the notification bell because here's the thing. We put exclusive content on YouTube that nobody else sees except our YouTube friends. So please subscribe to us there for exclusive content from the show. Uh, and also subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. 
I want to thank Dave Siegel for mixing and mastering and making the show sound so great. You can find him at SiegelSound.com and on Instagram, SiegelSound. And of course, our producer, Connor Crosby, for putting this whole thing together behind the scenes. You can find him at IgnitionVisuals.com. Of course, all things Go Creative Show are right there at GoCreativeShow.com. Leave us some comments. Let us know what you think of the show. And uh, we'll see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.